voice has to be heard, and uh, I'm glad you're here uh, representing those nations and uh, making sure that the rest of the world is listening. The waters are literally lapping at our ankles in the places where we should be living. You need to look at us as the canary in the coal mine. Now we, the most vulnerable, are told to suck it up and wait until 2023. You're listening to The Lid Is On from COP26, week two of COP26, and today is Adaptation Day. Now we've heard plenty of commitments talking about 2030 or 2050, which is all very well, but for many people, the effects of the climate crisis are right here, right now, today. They are living with those consequences. Around $100 billion a year was promised back in 2015, the famous COP21 in Paris, to help with adaptation. And that figure has still not been met. So we're going to dig into adaptation a bit today, get the view from the front lines. We'll be hearing from the leading UN official for the 91 poorest countries, Courtney Rattray, who is himself from Jamaica, a small island developing state. And we'll be hearing a UN expert view on how we can use nature to help us adapt. We'll also be getting a view of proceedings from Citizens Climate Education, a global volunteer organisation, on what they want to see from this COP. So a packed show today on adaptation. I'm joined today by Lara Quinones. Hello, Lara. Hola. Hola to you too. How was your (laughs) Sunday? Oh, my Sunday was great. I finally got to sleep until I just naturally woke up, which was wonderful. Wonderful. And uh, I had all of my clothes missing because the hotel mislaid my laundry yes funny for you i had to go shopping and get a full new set of clothes so that was that was a highlight of my day yesterday i walked around the city and washed it it was it was lovely uh, well good for you um <laughs> now back at cop 21 written into the paris agreement was 100 billion dollars a year for climate finance half of which was supposed to be earmarked for adaptation to date that target has never been reached. Now, the big event talking about this and how it affects islands in particular was the event which former president of the US, Barack Obama, was at. He was born in Hawaii, so he's got Pacific roots. He called himself an island kid. An island kid, Mm -hmm. yes. A child of the Pacific, the Prime Minister of Fiji called him. Uh, Some of you are small countries, don't have large populations, but you got a lot of heart. And you are protectors and preservers of what is a vital link for all humanity to this planet. Your voice has to be heard, and uh, I'm glad you're here uh, representing those nations and uh, making sure that the rest of the world is listening. I think the most striking thing about this was this rock star status of Barack Obama. It was extraordinary. Yes, it was incredible. You saw the crush out there, didn't you, out in the corridor? Yes. Uh, it was a lot of people just waiting on the corridors that go to the plenary or where the meeting room where he was going to be. And there were just loads and loads of people, not only journalists, but like regular participants waiting for him just to get a glimpse or just to take a picture from 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 far because you couldn't get close to him by all means. And uh, he just got ovations all over the place. Every time he showed up, people would start clapping. Honestly, I thought that <laughs> BTS had turned up. The crush was that big. Or, or, or Blackpink, you know, some kind of K-pop yeah. band or something. It was, it was nuts. No, it was Barack Obama. Yes, and we were talking about how busy things were at the beginning of last week, the World Leaders Summit, where mm-hmm. all of the prime ministers and the presidents turned up. And I got the impression today felt even busier. It did. It definitely did. I felt 
it felt all over like the first day with a little bit more of the of the mobs <laughs> um including the lines outside yeah i mean because well. usually what happens is you get a big crush at the beginning of these conferences mm -hmm. and they trickle away and then there's a bit of a, a resurgence but i wasn't really expecting this many people no me neither conference organizers had to announce again that they were giving priority to certain delegations and people that had to be at events to enter and were trying to be trying to get people to use the cop platform the virtual platform instead of coming because of the amount of people and that led to some complaints which we'll come to a bit later but oh. but back to this meeting at which Barack Obama was speaking, he was followed by Frank Bainimarama, the Prime Minister of Fiji. Now, of course, Barack Obama is a hard act to follow, but I feel like Prime Minister Bainimarama did a pretty good job, making oh, yes. it clear that he's far from impressed by the commitments made by richer countries at this year's COP. We welcome the new commitments made uh, last week, but with due respect, Mr. President, I can't feel any excitement for them because they are timid and... Uh, inadequate. Several major players, of course, as you know, are missing in action, and others have shown up with insufficient commitments that have uh, succeeded only in erecting speed bumps on the road that leads to the wrong side of 1.5 degrees of warming. Developed nations are failing us. They are the ones with the resources and the technology to make a difference. Yet, they have left the potential for clean energy adaptation on the table by missing the 100 billion pledge two years running. Among others, the USA is woefully short of paying its fair share of climate finance. Now we, the most vulnerable, are told to suck it up and wait until 2023. There's no delay, Mr. President, to build resilience across Fiji's over 110 populated areas, islands. 13 cyclones, 13 cyclones have struck Fiji since we ratified the Paris Agreement. Fiji has a trust fund uh, for relocation that finances the movement of uh, communities and infrastructure to higher ground. And we have offered refuge to the people of Kiribati, Tuvalu, in the event their nations are lost to the rising seas. So, to answer your question, sir, no, I'm not excited. I'm not prepared, along with every Fijian, to do what is necessary to secure our future and ensure we can grow our island economy in a warmer world. Powerful remarks from Fiji's Prime Minister Frank Bainimarama, really bringing home the fact that there are Pacific Islanders right now preparing to move to higher ground because their homes and villages are going to be submerged by rising seas. You cover this, of course, in your story of the day, Lara. Yes, of course, I cover what the uh, Prime Minister of Fiji said, but he was also joined uh, by the Minister of Grenada and um, activists from the Martian Islands. Uh, these all island states, they're all suffering from a similar situation and they know better than anyone that climate change is a real thing and it's a thing that is here and is here to stay. So they all have in common uh, their ask for more to deliver the promise that the developed countries made that they need to give those 100 billion. But um, the activists from the Marshall Islands actually said 
that they are doing studies of how much it's going to cost them to actually adapt to climate change, which includes um, kind of like moving to higher ground, uh, internal migration, and, and other things they need for infrastructure. And they said that it's going to be way more than $100 billion a year and that they need to review this goal by 2025. And again, these commitments we heard for 2030, 2050 are of no help to people who mm-hmm. risk being flooded out of their homes or even their islands in the next few years. I also spoke this morning to someone else who knows all about this issue, Courtney Rattray. He's the head of the UN office for the 91 poorest countries in the world. And these are the nations that really desperately need some of that $100 billion climate finance money right now. And this morning he told me that there is real frustration in these countries. There is a shortfall of cash and we've been banging the table. Um, We, meaning developing countries, in particular the small island developing states, have been complaining very loudly that there's a significant gap and that there was a pledge um, to provide 50-50 in terms of 50% of development finance, climate finance, towards mitigation and the other half towards adaptation. And we have not seen that. We have seen substantially less monies going towards adaptation. And so we have been trying to explore innovative ways of raising finance, such as debt for climate adaptation swaps. And um, we've had some modest success, my office in particular. Can you just explain what that would mean, a debt for a debt for climate swap? Well, it would kill two birds with one stone. As you know, many of these developing countries are at risk of debt distress, or if not in debt distress. And so it would help us on the debt side and it will also help us with respect to climate adaptation. Basically, it's a pretty simple financial structure. Um, Those countries, and in this case the Caribbean countries, that um, have sovereign debt, they would go to their creditors. First of all, they'd find an international organization, say for example the Green Climate Fund, just use an example, who is all about um, impact. You know, they would buy the debt from the creditor. So say you buy the debt of uh, Jamaica, right? You buy it for like 80 cents on the dollar. So you are now the new creditor for that country. So you would say to that country, listen, I now own your debt. I bought it less than it was worth. I can give you some debt relief. Instead of paying me back the full 100, I bought it for 80. Pay me back 80. And the 80 cents that you pay me back, I will put it into an adaptation fund that you can then utilize for your climate adaptation. So it immediately writes down the debt by 20%. And then the debt payments that would have had to be made anyway goes into a fund that the debtor then can access for climate change adaptation. So that's why I say two birds with one stone. It alleviates the debt burden and at the same time it provides a fund for adaptation. As you say, it sounds like a good deal. What are the countries saying about this? But I think it's a win-win for the countries. But, you know, um, I don't want to get ahead of them. Um, part of the scoping that we have to do for this project is to meet with the countries and in this case I'm not speaking necessarily about the ministries of foreign affairs I'm talking about the key decisions makers in the ministries of finance it has to make sense to those that have responsibility for debt management within country and we're not trying to to put a sort of have a sort of paternalistic approach to this where the UN comes in and says do this we know what's best for you this really has to be demand driven we think this is a potential solution we will lay it out to the countries and at the end of the day obviously it's their decision to make i was speaking to an activist from tonga uh, a couple of days ago and he was saying that 
he and people like him from his country feel that they have a lack of agency. They don't feel that they have enough power in these negotiations. Is that a message you're getting from representatives from other countries? Let me tell you. Um, one could legitimately ask, why has it taken so long for countries like the Pacific Seeds in Tonga, you know, to um, get The Seeds being the small island development small states. Island states. Why has it taken so long for countries like Tonga, who are small island development states, to get traction on this issue? We have been sounding the alarm for such a long time, and it is just now that I am beginning to sense that the pendulum is changing, that there's going to be a real sort of sea change in terms of the attitude of the international community. And I think it's, you know, I mean, we are very small countries. I mean, you look at a country, you know, some of these countries in the Pacific, like Tuvalu and, and Tonga and those countries, I mean, you're talking about 12, 15,000 people. And so I think even though we have been screaming and saying, listen, wake up, we are like an early warning system for the global community when it comes to ch the climate change. I think people are just starting to listen because before that they were saying, oh, these countries are so small, you know, we don't really need to listen to them, what do they know? And we have been in a state of panic. We have been saying, if you don't listen to us, I mean, the waters are literally lapping at our ankles in the places where we should be living. You need to look at us as the canary in the coal mine. And I see things shifting now, one, through the activism of the youth, Two, I think the private sector is finally coming around and starting to get it with respect to emissions. And three, I think of that some of the big emitters, some of them are starting to wake up. And when I'm, and I'm speaking specifically about the G20 countries, because 75% of the um, CO2 emissions are made by countries of the G20. And that is the elephant in the room, and we really need them to move not just one by one, but in lockstep. That was Courtney Rattray, the head of the UN office, which represents the interests of the 91 poorest countries in the world, pointing out the elephant in the room, the need for the richest, highest emitting states to come up with a funding solution for the nations he represents so that they can adapt to the climate crisis. And the other thing that struck me about this issue is what exactly that money is going to be used for. Uh, we heard about the trust fund to allow people to migrate to higher ground and we've covered this a lot on UN News and this can mean projects that ensure houses and infrastructure can withstand climate shocks, it can mean building flood defences or planting crops that are more resistant to droughts and it can also mean working with nature to help us to adapt and become more resilient. This morning I met Val Kapos from the UN Environment Programme World Conservation Monitoring Centre which is based in Cambridge, England. She runs the Climate and Biodiversity Programme at the Centre, which helps countries to conserve biodiversity. And she told me why biodiversity can help us to cope with the changing climate. Climate change has major impacts on biodiversity, but biological diversity is also fundamental to our efforts to address climate change. Both in terms of mitigation and in terms of adaptation, nature plays a massive role. Well, talking about adaptation, a lot of the talk today and for the, for the previous few days as well has been about how people need to adapt, how yeah. we need to be thinking about how we, how we, how cities are in the future and, and obviously how much money is needed to help the people in developing countries who aren't responsible for this mess but are the ones on the front that have been affected. But from your point of view, how do you define adaptation? Well, there's ecosystem adaptation and there's ecosystem-based adaptation. Um, when, and the more common term or the thing I think you will have heard more here is ecosystem-based adaptation. 
which, which is sometimes also framed as nature-based solutions for adaptation. And what that is, is actually making use of nature to help people adapt. Does that include making sure there are parks in cities, making sure that there are trees, making sure that, I mean, in, in the UK, people have been um, digging up their front gardens of car parks and that's, there's been much more flooding as a result yeah. of that. So is that the kind of thing you mean? Well, so, so absolutely, those kinds of things. Um, green space, as you say. Um, one thing that's becoming increasingly important in a lot of cities is what's sometimes called renaturing waterways, um, making getting rid of the concrete in riverbanks and making space for rivers to, if they need to, flood a little bit, but to flood into natural and permeable environments so that that water then goes away and doesn't have such impact. Green space has effects both on sort of temperature, temperature loads but also on um, air pollution loads, so it's, it's not just climate change. People talk about green buildings, you know, green roofs, green buildings. If you want to make sure that you've got stable water supplies in cities, then you need to take care of the natural world outside of cities, because all major cities depend on catchments that are outside the cities. And if those catchments are wooded or have natural vegetation on them, they're much more likely to be able to provide a, sta- a steady and stable supply of water and not have these huge peak flows and then large droughts. So those are the kinds of things in the urban environment, in more rural environments, it's similar sorts of approaches. Um, The other thing you hear a lot about with respect to ecosystem-based adaptation is coastal risk. We we know very well that mangroves are extremely effective in reducing the impacts of coastal surges from storms, in helping to cope with the fluctuations in water level that come with sea level rise. I mean, the other thing about ecosystems is that they can also work together with some of the more engineered solutions that we're used to thinking about. So for those coastal environments, it's really common to think about building sea walls. And as we worry about climate change, we talk about building them higher and stronger. But we also know very well that working with mangroves and other coastal vegetation can increase the effectiveness of what's already there by reducing the impacts by reducing the impacts of coastal surges on the built structures as well as on the communities and ecosystems that we're concerned about. Val Capos from the UN Environment Programme World Conservation Monitoring Centre singing the praises yet again of our old friends, your old friends, Lara, mangroves, the magical mangroves that light up at night, you said. Yes. And how they can help us preserve coastal areas and essentially how we can use nature to help us to adapt to the changing climate. So end of week one, beginning of week two, time perhaps to do a bit of a, a stock take. A final decision draft is out. I mean, well, it's actually a non-paper, it's called, on uh, possible elements. And these could all be in the final agreed text, which is still very much up for grabs. I, I had a quick look at it. Uh, things I saw in there, like things like urgently scaling up finance flows to support developing countries. Recent finance commitments were also acknowledged. What else did you see in there, Lara? Yeah, the stock take that the presidency of COP did today. Um, representatives from the G70, the group of the 77 and China, as well as the small alliance of small island states and the least developed countries. Uh, they all spoke and they all have a similar, um, let's say, a similar view of what is going on with the negotiations right now. They all said that the commitments made last week were very welcome, but that they don't, they're not sure of how they're going to translate 
into actions on the ground. They all as well asked for that 100 billion promise to be delivered. And Antigua and Barbuda, who was representing the Alliance of Small Island States, reminded everyone about the latest um, NDC synthesis, which is the national plans to reduce emissions, that said that there is a huge ambition gap and that we need a stronger commitments if they want to if we want to decrease 45% of the emissions that we need to keep to curb global heating 1.5 degrees well that's that's the view of the countries most affected yes. by climate change these so-called frontline states i wanted to get the view of some of the advocacy groups the civil society that's out there i also spoke to joseph robertson he's the executive director of citizens climate international this is an international network of around 200,000 citizen volunteers across 75 countries and they work to build political will for a livable climate future he gave me his take on progress made so far he said that one sticking point is this famous article six of the paris agreement which you know all about this is the one that lays out responsibility for all countries to cut dangerous greenhouse gas emissions however how it happens in practice remains unclear we're concerned about that we think it's important that 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 process be one where everybody comes together and finds their own way to act on international cooperation for overall emissions reduction. The other thing that we're concerned about is the Action for Climate Empowerment Agenda, which is essentially civics and public information in the, in the COP process. In the draft decision about the next work program for Action for Climate Empowerment, the public role in all of this, um, language about human rights was removed. We think that's very problematic, especially when you consider a number of nations have seen their highest courts rule that climate protection is a basic human right. Um, it, it is in some ways foundational to this entire process where in 1992, the convention brought all of these nations together in a commitment to avoid dangerous climate change. It's a rights issue. It's a safety issue. Um, and so we'd like to see that back there. We think that that's an empowering and motivational uh, area, bringing rights into all of this. And for countries that aren't sure that's how they want to think about this, um, you know, the perspective of our network of stakeholders around the world is if you can compete at that level, if you can plan your future, develop your economy, serve the interests of your people while respecting human rights, you're doing a much better job. You're in a much stronger position. Your nation is going to have more influence and more security if you can perform at that level. If you can't, then, you know, of course, stakeholders are going to say, why can't you? You seem like you're, you've got your war face on a few days to go. How do you think you'll be feeling at the end? Well, you know, it's, uh, it's hard to relax because there's just so much happening coming from so many directions and it all matters. Um, I think last week this announcement that the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero is going to align $130 trillion with science-based net zero targets, that's pretty exciting because if they do that, it means that that $130 trillion, about a third of all the financial holdings in the world, has to achieve 50% emissions reductions globally within nine years. So. It's yet to be seen how they will do that or if they can do that, but if they, if they do, we're in a good place. And 
you said Warface, and I think it's important that we be very serious about each piece of this process. Every piece of it matters. Every piece of this process is going to shape somebody's destiny. And we take that seriously, and we're, we're here to make sure that the people who work with us uh, are well-positioned to have governments doing the right thing for them and for their, for their families. That was Joseph Robertson, the executive director of Citizens Climate International, with a call for human rights to play a more prominent role in the negotiations at COP26. Now, before we go, Lara, do you have any highlights, first of all? No, I think Obama was my highlight of the day and everyone's highlight of the day, apparently, here in the building. <laughs> well, I think my highlight was Yasava. Have you heard of Yasava? No. Yasava is a very high-end company that creates bespoke interiors for private jets. Super luxurious, very nicely styled. They have like a Zen version. They have an Amazon version. It's beautiful. Best thing about it is... It doesn't even exist. So it turns out that Yasava was accepted into a group of private companies Mm -hmm. that have joined a a net zero group. Yeah. But they don't exist. Okay. It was actually set up by a prankster group called the Yes Men, who've been doing this kind of thing for Mm. years. And it was very, very convincing. They wanted to show an air of cynicism about the kind of companies that are allowed to take part in these groups. But the striking thing about it was, when you look into it, they did so much work. They have a, a fake CEO. They have a fake TED Talk by the CEO. They have fake LinkedIn pages. Me? They have fake Instagram pages, Facebook pages. It really does look legit. So if you get a chance, <laughs> and now you know that it's not real, take a look at the Yasava website, Y-A-S-A-V-A. It's really very funny. Wow. So that's that was my uh, that's, that's comedy going, highlight of the day, I think. That's going above and beyond. And the other highlight is the artistic highlight. It's Emily Burridge, the cellist and composer. She's also the founder of the charitable trust Indigenous Peoples Cultural Support. And she was performing her solo cello composition into the Amazon earlier today, which has loops and it also involves field recordings and traditional singing of the Shavanti tribe from Brazil. So I think we're going to end with that today because it really is a beautiful piece of work. So thank you, Lara. No, thank you. And thank you all for listening. (laughs) And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, this podcast, The Lid Is On, and subscribe to Lara's newsletter. You can find all the content on our page, which is news.un.org. Yes. Mm